This is Guns and Butter. This is a basic strategy in the uh, original shock and awe doctrine. You are not to let your adversary recover. You keep uh, relentlessly hitting them. And so you give them 9-11 and then you give them the anthrax attacks. And then if you can do a few more bombings in Europe and in London a little bit later, whenever people start to feel comfortable, you hit them with another terrorist attack. That's the only thing that's kept this stupid war on terror going is, you know, every now and then there'll be another one of these attacks. Most of them, to the extent that I can tell by looking at them, or most of them are cooked up to keep things going. So that's the anthrax attacks. It's strike number two on the U.S. It enables the Patriot Act to go through. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Graham McQueen. Today's show, connecting the anthrax attacks to September 11th. Graham McQueen taught in the Religious Studies Department of McMaster University in Ontario for 30 years. In 1989, he became founding director of the Center for Peace Studies at McMaster, after which he helped develop the BA program in peace studies and oversaw the development of peacebuilding projects in Sri Lanka, Gaza, Croatia, and Afghanistan. Since taking early retirement from McMaster, most of his research has focused on the events of 9-11. He currently serves on the Board of Directors of the International Center for 9-11 Studies, which has secured the release of numerous photographs and videos held by the U.S. government. Today we discuss the structural, historical, and symbolic approaches to understanding the anthrax attacks and take a look at the connections between the attacks of September 11th and anthrax. Dr. Graham McQueen, welcome. Thank you, Bonnie. It's a privilege to be on the show. As a co-founder and director of McMaster University's Center for Peace Studies, you had occasion to attend a conference in Peshawar, Pakistan, in the months leading up to September 11, 2001, I believe in February of 2001. What was the conference about? Who was in attendance? And what occurred there that presaged the invasion of Afghanistan? Well, it was uh, actually a little bit more than a conference. I'd call it a really intensive extended workshop. Uh, the Center for Peace Studies that I'd been involved in had uh, gone together with the Center for International Health at my university and had, had chosen a few parts of the world that especially needed uh, help with peace building and were doing projects in them. And Afghanistan was chosen pretty early, and we'd had teams going to the country off and on since 1993, and uh, I had gone to Afghanistan myself in 1995, um, though I'm not usually much of a field person. I usually kept things going uh, back in Canada. But um, in any case, we had a couple of projects funded by the Canadian government and by various other organizations, and in 2001, we were there to give uh, a week of pretty intensive full-day workshops um, for five days a week, basically nine to five. We were with 100 Afghans who'd been chosen in advance. About 30 were former Afghan cabinet ministers. Some were media people, uh, other prominent people, university people. And uh, 10 out of the 100 were women, 
which isn't a very good representation, but it, it was pretty good under the circumstances. It's not that easy. Um, and I should say that uh, I, I don't want to take a lot of credit for this workshop. It was designed by two other people, one of whom is uh, living and working in Afghanistan now. He's an Afghan-Canadian. And the other was a man generally called the father of peace research, uh, Norwegian Johan Galtung. And Galtung has worked in conflict regions all over the world. And he was really the main designer of this thing, and I was there in the capacity of helping him along with several of the people. So there we were, nine to five, five days, working intensely. What can Afghans do about their conflict? Or I should say conflicts, because they rapidly identified several. There's not just one conflict. And um, lots of brainstorming, lots of small group work, lots of little reports submitted, lots of interesting ideas. And we saw the level of hope going up as the workshop continued, because a lot of people had been reduced pretty close to despair at that time. I should have explained that we were in Peshawar because our government discouraged us this time from going to Afghanistan. So we chose as our partner um, a university called the Afghan University, which had been set up by Afghan refugees in Peshawar, Pakistan, because a huge refugee population there. So they were our partners, we were there, they were hosting us, and so on and so on. Now, the part you're referring to took place, I can't remember whether it was the second day or the third day or whatever, but people were generating ideas for what could be done about Afghanistan. And one gentleman, as I recall him, uh, bearded but uh, dressed in sort of Western uh, clothes, a nice suit and so on, stood up and said uh, basically, um, you know, you're coming up with good ideas, but the United States will soon be creating a war in Afghanistan. They want the oil, and they also want a permanent base, which they intend to build here. So everything that we're doing is of no avail. That's almost a direct quote. I have his words here. Um, and then he sat down again, and it was, as I recall, kind of a, a bit of a silence because, as I say, the level of hope had been going up, and what were we supposed to do with this? I didn't know what to make of it. Uh, I had been involved in peace work and anti-war work, both as an academic and an activist, for a lot of years, so I don't think I had any illusions about imperial powers. I didn't, I didn't sort of think, oh, gee, you know, the American government would never invade Afghanistan. Of course they would, under some circumstances. But there were a couple of things troubling me that I that you know I have found hard to understand. First of all, you know, would they really be stupid enough to invade Afghanistan because it's been invaded by a lot of great powers and they sooner or later come to grief? It doesn't work, right? Didn't work with the British, didn't work with the uh, Soviets, and so on. So that was the first thing. But also, I thought, what conceivable pretext could they cook up? for an invasion of one of the poorest, most miserable countries in the world. All you had to do was look at the infant mortality rate and so on. This was just such a weak and impoverished country. And I remembered in 1979 when the Soviets invaded, how they were condemned all over the world, and there was great puffing and huffing in the West about how this showed how inherently aggressive you know, communism was and so on and so forth. And we all agreed that the Soviets had done an unjust thing and also... A very stupid thing. Now, really, were the Americans, it seemed to me, was the American government stupid enough to do the same thing? 
no pretext. Afghanistan wasn't a threat to the United States, and so on and so forth. You get the point. That's one of these occasions where you take that little comment the man makes, and a few other comments, by the way, at the same time. Some people told me that U.S. forces could already be seen on the ground around there. I didn't know what to make of that either. So I put this in a little shelf in my mind, and it wasn't until much later that I brought it out again and thought about it and thought, you know, if I'd really been awake at that point, really been with it, I might have uh, seen some of the 9-11 stuff and the subsequent invasion of Afghanistan more more readily, and I might have understood them better when they did happen. Well, do you have any idea who this person was or where he was getting his information? No, and even if I did remember his name, I probably couldn't give it for confidentiality reasons. However, as I said, about 30% of the people in our conference were former uh, Afghan uh, ministers in the government, and uh, they had connections, of course, in Pakistan. Um, and I would be very surprised if he weren't a well-connected man with Pakistani intelligence and so on. I should say that the leader of the workshop, I, I spoke to Johan Galtung about this a year ago. I said, Johan, I remember, you know, I was reading over the minutes and I'm remembering this guy speaking. I said, do you remember this incident? And he said, oh, of course I do. I was intrigued. So I went up to him and wanted more information. And he took me to his office later and he showed me the maps and so on and so forth. So obviously the guy felt he had a lot of information, but uh, I, I can only speculate as to where he got it. I mean, we later learned, of course, that there had been things published in various Asian newspapers saying that the United States would, in fact, be invading in the fall, invading Afghanistan. Um, I think it's the Asia Times. I have the article around here somewhere that, that said that in the summer. But we we didn't get, at least I don't remember getting any news about that in my media. So it was a great surprise to me later to go back and see that this information was floating around if you knew where to look. Wow, that's very interesting. And at the time that you were uh, conducting these workshops in Peshawar, uh, the Taliban were in control of most of Afghanistan, right? That's correct. The Taliban had been taking over. When I was there in 95, uh, they were on the move, and everyone, we, who are these people, what are they up to? And we got various interesting answers, but uh, we were in Herat, and they hadn't taken over Herat yet. By the time of 2001, they controlled almost all the country. The Northern Alliance maintained a small presence, but most of it had been taken over by the Taliban. I just wanted to mention, you know, the Taliban are very much demonized over here as if they're from another planet, but they're not all that unusual. They're similar in many ways to other Mujahideen groups. And uh, there were a couple of Taliban advocates and supporters in the room, in, in our workshops, and the Taliban themselves showed up one day, uh, you know, to express their views about what we were doing. <laughs> so it's not like they were considered particularly rare or unusual over there. Well, switching the subject a little bit, one of your most important areas of research has been the anthrax attacks that began a week after 9-11. You have pointed out that the anthrax attacks of September-October 2001 are intimately connected to the events of September 11th. What do the effects of the anthrax attacks have in common with September 11th? Yeah, I should say, actually, that that's how I got into studying the anthrax attacks. Mainly, I'm a researcher these days on 
the events of 9-11, which I consider to be fraudulent. I consider it to be a false flag operation. But, um, you know, I eventually realized, you know, you you can't keep avoiding the anthrax attacks because, you know, they happened at almost exactly the same time. They had similar structure and effects. And, and, you know, everything you hear about them suggests that they're fraudulent, too. So it's time to look into it. So I took a few months off to study it. And that's where I'm coming from. I'm coming from it as somebody who wants to understand the so-called global war on terror and wants to understand the role of the fall of 2001 in which these two major attacks on the U.S. homeland occurred, the 9-11 attacks and then, as you said, starting a week later, the anthrax attacks. So to get to your question, what do they have in common? There are actually um, several different ways of looking at that. Um, You can do a structural analysis, symbolic analysis, or historical analysis. But let me start with the structural and the historical. By structural analysis, I just mean you can just analyze what are the anthrax attacks, you know, like who supposedly did them, according to the official story at the time, who seems to have actually done them, what seems to have been the point, what was the purpose, what were the effects, And you try and line all that up, and then you look at 9-11, and you see if there are structural similarities. And, of course, there are. And and this is kind of important. I often use this now, and I'm giving a talk on 9-11. I say to my audience, there are a lot of people who are really indignant, um, both in the U.S. and in Canada, when I give a talk on 9-11. And they say, you really think that people in the United States, and more specifically in the military-industrial complex, as you call it, are willing to kill other Americans, target them and kill them in cold blood, and not only that, but try to terrorize the entire population of the United States and do it all deceptively and cast the blame on other people, namely Muslims. And I say, yeah, I'm afraid I do believe that, because, for example, we know what happened. And then I give the anthrax example, because even the FBI, okay, recognizes that in the case of the anthrax attacks, that's what happened. It was blamed on Muslims. I mean, the the anthrax letters are very clear about that, you know, death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. It's kind of like a Hollywood version of an extremist Muslim. But there you have it. I mean, it's very clear. And yet that story began to crumble almost immediately. And by early 2002, just about everyone was willing to acknowledge that, you know, there was no evidence that it was done by Muslims of any kind whatsoever. This anthrax seemed almost certainly to come from highly secure U.S. military laboratories or military-associated laboratories. And then the FBI starts trying to find out who it is. They eventually claim that Bruce Ivins did it. So here's the official FBI story. It is that somebody in the heart of the U.S. military-industrial complex carried out these attacks, killing American citizens, terrorizing the whole country on purpose, and blaming Muslims for it. Now, of course, there are differences in the way the FBI understands this and the way I understand it, but at least we we agree on that much. So the FBI, in effect, agrees that it was an inside job, agrees that it was a false flag operation that ends up implicating Muslims. And that's quite a bit to agree on. Of course, we also disagree on some pretty big things. And I find that helpful because that allows people to see that there are structural similarities, all those different points that the anthrax attacks have in common with the 9-11 attacks as I understand them. Again, they killed Americans, they 
terrorized the country. They laid the blame falsely on Muslims. You see the point? So that, that's what I would call a structural approach to it. I'm speaking with researcher Dr. Graham McQueen. Today's show, Connecting the Anthrax Attacks to September 11th. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So I'll just try and give you a brief explanation of what I mean by an historical approach. By historical, I just mean instead of looking at the structural similarities, we look at the specifics of what happened historically, and we try and find out if there are any actual connections between people who were involved apparently in the 9-11 thing, such as the 19 Arabs who supposedly hijacked planes, and the people who were doing anthrax stuff. And if we find that there are common individuals and there are connections, then that becomes very interesting. And that reinforces our view that we really have to think about these two acts of terrorism, if you want to use that word, we have to think about them together, that they will shed light on each other the more we compare them and think about them together. You've already begun to address this, but I wanted you to elaborate on your research which suggests that the anthrax attacks were initially designed to be connected to the events of September 11th, as you put it, as a one-two punch, but then as the anthrax narrative fell apart, were then presented as a separate event. The public was encouraged to see these events as separate. Please explain why and how this was done. Yeah, well, just so everybody understands what I mean by that, so... Yeah, the point is that initially we were all told, oh, they're connected, they're connected, the same people are doing the both, America's in danger, so we have to pass the Patriot Act, which got passed right in the middle of the anthrax care, and we have to invade Afghanistan, which happened two days after the first anthrax death, and then we have to go to Iraq because they have anthrax, and Colin Powell at the UN is holding up this little vial of anthrax, so... So that's what was going on at the beginning. We have to think these events together. Yes, and as you say, once the anthrax story began to crumble, they rapidly said, no, no, don't think about them together. No, 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 they're completely different. And you can see why. Because if we continue to think about them together, as the anthrax story falls to the ground, it will drag the 9-11 story down with it, right? I mean, if one is a fake and it's connected to the other one, sooner or later people are going to say, well, you know, maybe this 9-11 is a fake too. So they slice them apart. They say, forget about it, they're not connected. 9-11 was these guys over here, it was genuinely Muslim terrorists. Uh, anthrax, which happened a week later, was fake Muslim terrorists. So the genuine ones here, a week later the fake ones, and then later it's Bruce Ivins, he had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda. You, know, you see the point? So they're trying to separate them. Well, before we start with the sequence of events in the anthrax attacks, what was Operation Dark Winter? Well, Dark Winter was a U.S. military exercise or training exercise, which was held, as I recall, in June of 2001, so several months before the anthrax attacks happened. And of course, they're doing exercises all the time, and there had been a number of bio-exercises. But I found this one particularly interesting because it was quite a large-scale thing, and it had a script and all that, and it wasn't anthrax in this particular exercise. It was supposed to be smallpox. Somebody was taking smallpox and using this as an attack on the United States, and they were sending little letters with the genetic fingerprint of the smallpox to various places in the U.S. 
So this, this kind of exercise went on. It was played by people over a period of days, and it turned out at the end that the people that were manufacturing the smallpox and attacking the United States was Iraq. Iraq was the source of it. And it turned out, though, that Iraq used intermediaries to actually deliver the stuff. And I, as I recall, the script doesn't specifically name the intermediaries, but a reasonable assumption is that they were Muslim agents of some kind, not too dissimilar from the uh, the famous 19 Arabs. So that we had two different groups. Iraq is in the background. Uh, another slightly related group is running around delivering letters and threats and so on. And it just seemed to me this is kind of a remarkably prescient exercise, given what happened just a few months later. And we always have to bear in mind, I should say, that the proliferation of exercises often happens in the vicinity of these fake uh, events, these fraudulent attacks. And sometimes there's reason to believe that, for example, in this case, that the anthrax letters may have been written originally for an exercise of some kind. And then the exercise was supposedly taken live. Could you lead us through the sequence of events that constitute the anthrax attack starting on September 18th? Yeah, it's assumed that on the 18th or 19th, the first letter was mailed with anthrax inside it. And the anthrax, as I recall, we're talking about maybe two grams of anthrax spores, highly, well, at least in the letters to the senators that came later, highly, highly refined, very uniform spores with about two trillion spores per gram so fine that it could escape through the pores in the paper. Now, this is when the letters began to be sent, as far as we can tell, and they continued over a period of weeks. We don't really know how many letters were sent altogether. The estimates are usually between five and seven, but there may, of course, have been even more. Some were sent to politicians, the two Democratic senators, Leahy and Daschle, uh, and others were sent to people in the media. So, for example, Tom Brokaw got one. Several uh, news media got these. Now, five people died during this period, all of them from pulmonary or inhalational anthrax. Anthrax is most dangerous when you inhale it and it gets in your lungs. Other people contacted cutaneous anthrax, skin anthrax, and about 22 people were injured, some of them pretty severely, some have not fully recovered. So this went on, really October is the hottest month for this. The first death was Rob Stevens from Florida, and he died on October 5th, and this really caught the average citizen, at least, off guard. It didn't catch everybody off guard, as I'm sure you know some people are already taking Cipro, the antibiotic, in a preventive measure. But most citizens, at least, were caught off guard by all this. And then more people continued to die, like postal workers who got infected as these letters came through the mail. Huge buildings were contaminated and had to be very expensively either destroyed or cleaned. We were all told that Muslim extremists, and there was a lot of speculation that this might lead to a military assault on Iraq. All of this is in the news at the time. Uh, but then again, it begins to fall apart because, for some reason, the perpetrators didn't have as complete control over the science as they thought they did, for example, as they did in the early years on 9-11. And scientists, 
even military scientists in the U.S. looked at it and and said things that were uh, out of sync with the narrative. So, for example, ABC News repeated several times very firmly that highly placed sources assure us that this anthrax has been weaponized by the use of a particular ingredient called bentonite. And since the Iraqis use bentonite to weaponize their anthrax, this is a strong sign that this is from Iraq. Well, you know, then guess what? The Armed Forces Institute on Pathology was given a sample of the anthrax to uh, look at, you know, and I have the report here, and they were very clear. There's no bentonite in it. That was complete BS. There never was any bentonite in it. And, and of course, it became clear very quickly that it was a particular strain of anthrax, the Ames strain, which comes from Texas, 1981, and which was kept mostly in U.S. military labs. Well, military and education, the only labs outside the U.S. that were known to have the Ames strain were allies the UK, maybe Sweden, Canada. There was no evidence that Muslims had it, that Iraq had it. So you see the point. It's the AIM strain. It's not weaponized in the Iraqi way. And pretty rapidly, you have people, including Tom Ridge, coming out and saying, you know what? It looks like a domestic operation. So that was a story that fell to the ground very quickly. What exactly did the anthrax letters say? Well, um, some of the letters were never recovered. For example, the one that Robert Stevens presumably handled in Florida was never recovered. But the couple that were sent to the senators were recovered. The gist is uh, that they're written in a kind of crude, uh, I would say Hollywood Muslim fashion. Here's one. Um, at right at the top, it says 09-11-01. In other words, 9-11. That's what it says right at the top. Both of the letters that were recovered have that date written at the top. So they're announcing, basically, to the world we are connected to 9-11, because there's no reason to believe they were actually written on 9-11, and they certainly weren't mailed on 9-11. Um, but that's what they say at the end, 9-11. Then here's what this one says. This is next. This is all printed, by the way, and it's a slightly primitive uh, printing. This is next. Take penicillin now. Death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. And penicillin, okay, spelled wrong, so the, the kind of the idea is here that these are dangerous people. They're cunning savages, so to speak. They're dangerous, but they're not sophisticated. Um, and, you know, if they've got a letter full of anthrax, and the anthrax is highly developed, they must come from somewhere else. So these are the field operatives, the Al-Qaeda people. That's, that's what I read from this message. And somebody sophisticated stands behind it. The other letter um, to the senator is very similar. It's basically something like, um, we have this anthrax. Are you afraid? Death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great, right? So that's, that's what we're talking about. Those are the little letters that we can then analyze. Right, and then that is supposed to make us think what? That uh, Iraq and Al-Qaeda had something to do with it? Yeah, I mean, the average person wouldn't get all of that out of just reading the letter. But if you look at how these letters are being interpreted in the press at the time, that's the idea, yes. That these little guys that couldn't spell properly and were, you know, deaf to America, that they were presumably extremist Muslims who were the agents on the ground, like the 19 Arabs and that this clumsy little letter, hand 
printed with spelling mistakes, um, was incongruous in the context of highly, highly sophisticated anthrax. I mean, I can't overstress this. The anthrax in the two letters to the senators was, according to some observers, among the most sophisticated anthrax ever seen in terms of a weaponized product. There's no way al-Qaeda was cooking it up in little labs, and this was said very explicitly in the newspapers at the time. Therefore, somebody else had to have supplied the anthrax. So that's why I say when you combine the crude little letter with the sophisticated biological product in the envelope, you get this notion of the dual perpetrator. And what do you think of the timing of the anthrax attacks? Well, as I said before, it's a one-two punch. Don't let uh, the U.S. population recover. This is a basic strategy in the uh, original shock and awe doctrine. You are not to let your adversary recover. You keep uh, relentlessly hitting them. And so you give them 9-11, and then you give them the anthrax attacks. And then if you can do a few more bombings in Europe and in London a little bit later, whenever people start to feel comfortable, you hit them with another terrorist attack. That's the only thing that's kept this stupid war on terror going, is, you know, every now and then there'll be another one of these attacks. Most of them, to the extent that I can tell by looking at them, most of them are cooked up to keep things going. So, yeah, so that's the anthrax attacks. It's strike number two on the U.S. It enables the Patriot Act to go through. Uh, Senators Leahy and Daschle might have held up the Patriot Act's passage, but since their own offices, or at least in the one case, the office is thoroughly contaminated and a young woman gets ill, they're at this point being terrorized as well. And messages are being given out, sometimes not too subtly, it seems to me. If you get in our way, this is going to happen. I'm speaking with researcher Dr. Graham McQueen. Today's show, Connecting the Anthrax Attacks to September 11th. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So basically, I've talked about the structural and the historical approaches. I'd also say there's a symbolic level going on here, and I don't want to get too abstract and kind of boringly academic and postmodern and all that about it. Philip Saracen wrote a good book about this in, I think, 2006. But the gist is that anthrax is a particularly potent symbol. It's a silent, invisible, deadly agent which invades the body and corrupts it, and the body cannot defend itself against it, and death comes in agony. And this becomes a symbol of the nation, says Saracen. And I think I think he's right. I don't think this is too fanciful. The nation as body, so that the nation, just as you can no longer have what you might call the free love body, the body that interacts in a, an open, loving, sexual way, let's say, with other bodies, the free love body, um, that's no good because now you've got things that are entering the body. Historically, that would the, the parallel would be HIV/AIDS, probably, which led people to say, "Okay, now we've got to go back to a, an, an older, an older model of the body, the defended body, maybe even the fortress body, which doesn't interact freely with other bodies." What Saracen is saying is, what's going on here is the nation is thought of as the body, so that America was at one time treasured its freedom above all things, and it could interact freely with others through free trade and free this and that and tourism and 
and suddenly all that's all that is in danger because these organisms you know just as anthrax attacks the body these muslim extremists attack the pure nation they they invade the homeland they desecrate the homeland they create a kind of contamination and therefore we must put up borders no more free love nation we have to reinforce the borders we have to guard them we have to have a fortress america and we have to even be willing to go out and be extremely violent to other people to kill these pathogens before they can do us harm so uh, he has a lot of support that this is what's going on in the deep consciousness of people and it's it's important really to think at this level it's not just a matter of being clever because a lot of what we're talking about here is not easily reduced to rational terms. I've taught courses on this kind of thing at the university, and I remember getting up showing the students, okay, in the year, let's say, 2003, I don't remember, I mean, I don't have the figures here, but let's see how many Americans died through international terrorism. And there are, you know, official statistics on this, and let's say it was maybe 12 that year, I don't remember. Well, how many Americans died through traffic accidents? Oh, 40,000. Okay, and how many died from smoking? That's maybe 10 times as many again, maybe 400,000. So why is it that we're not all going around, you know, terrified of cars and cigarettes? The U.S. has this massive military budget skyrocketing because of terrorism, and the number of casualties is really very low. Well, see, it's not rational. We're not operating on a rational level. We're operating on a symbolic level, and the nation has been contaminated. And um, actually, there's a... There's a verse in uh, your national anthem, which I guess isn't sung anymore, but it's worth getting out to look at because it it has a line in it that's something like, uh, their blood will wipe out their foul footsteps pollution. This was talking about the British, I guess, in the War of 1812, but it applies very well to Al-Qaeda. In other words, they have come to our nation and this is their foul footsteps pollution. They have polluted the pure body of our nation. And how do you get rid of that? How do you get rid of that? And at this extremely primitive level, the answer there is clear. Only their blood will wipe out this contamination. And that's why we knew that Americans would unfortunately be susceptible to warmongering and that many people would pay with their lives for this attack, regardless of who did it. And they have paid for their lives in Afghanistan and Iraq, to take the two obvious examples. So when we're looking at this, we look at the structural level, what are the basic elements in an attack like the anthrax attack, and how do they line up? We look at the historical level, what are the actual events that connect 9-11, for example, and anthrax attacks. And we look at that symbolic level because it's very important. Well, yes, that's a very interesting uh, way of looking at it, as a contamination of the whole country. That's mm. quite interesting. Could you briefly describe the Bruce Ivins affair and what purpose is served by the lone nut theory of, of perpetrators? Yeah, good question. Well, there's two different questions there. And rather than starting off with a discussion of Ivins himself, although I can say a little bit about that, I'd rather talk in terms of the broad categories that you mentioned, like lone nut, because I actually think we make a mistake sometimes when we move too quickly to talk about Bruce Ivins. Um, what that often does 
even in people in the peace movement, is change the discourse. So the discourse becomes, what is the identity of the anthrax killer, right? The identity of the anthrax killer. And if we're looking for the anthrax killer in the singular, we've already missed the boat because there was no singular killer. This was a group. This is a group. And one of the major things that the FBI and their associates has been able to accomplish is to get people to miss this rather obvious point. So let's go through this because it, it should answer your question about the lone nut. If you do a little grid you know, with four quadrants, you see there are four main possibilities for who could have carried out the anthrax attacks. It could have been a foreign individual, you know, a person acting on their own from a foreign country outside the U.S. It could have been a foreign group, or it could have been a domestic individual or a domestic group. Those are the main four categories of possibility. And the brilliance of the FBI's approach has been that First of all, everyone thought it it was in the quadrant of foreign group, right? Or you might even say groups, Al-Qaeda and Iraq. Lots of people were involved. So the idea was there, all kinds of people were conspiring to do this. The bad guys conspired. That means they planned in secret to carry out an illegal act. That's what a, a conspiracy is. And you'll notice that when the bad guys, the other, the enemy, conspire to do us harm, we consider that very natural, of course, because they're bad. <laughs> they're the enemy. Of course, they're going to be. They're going to conspire. You don't even need to use the word because it's assumed. And I, I've never seen anyone accused of a conspiracy theory or of being a conspiracy theorist when they said that the enemy conspire because it's just assumed that they, they're evil, so that's what they'll do. But things change when it becomes discovered but this is domestic. This comes from inside the United States. So suddenly, the discourse changes from foreign group to domestic individual, right? The obvious other possibility is domestic group, but that ends up not being researched very much. It gets passed over. So if you read the final FBI's report on the anthrax killings, there's very little attention, very little attention given to the possibility of a domestic group. They've basically slipped from foreign group to domestic individual. Well, what's that about? Well, the idea seems to be that we, and especially our beneficent governments, would never, of course, get together as a group and actually plan rationally in secret to deceive us and to murder us. No, no, that's unthinkable. So if evil has come from within our group, it must be a random individual who tells us nothing, really, about society as a whole, meaning it tells us nothing about our society. It's just a random, disturbed individual who has somehow cropped up in our society, and there's nothing we can do about it. There's always going to be such people. We'll try and find them, but, you know, what are you going to do, right? Whereas, of course, if we actually say, suppose it's a domestic group lodged in the very heart of the U.S. military-industrial complex, and they did conspire, and they were rational, not nutty, and they knew what they were doing, and they terrorized the population on purpose. Then, if you say that, and it's clear to me that that's what happened, but if you say that, suddenly you're accused of being a conspiracy theorist, right? Because those bad guys conspire all the time. That's not interesting. But when you claim that our people, our government might conspire, 
well then you know you're you're a sleazy and slightly screwed up person you're a conspiracy theorist so this whole notion of the lone nut not only a solitary individual but an unbalanced and unrepresentative individual has been extremely important in recent US history and what it gives is a way of carrying out violent actions that actually have often state institutions behind them. And you throw up this Patsy, this Oswald, this James Earl Ray or whatever, and say, well, you know, it's a lone nut again, so really there's no point looking further, nothing to see here, folks, move on. doesn't tell us anything about the deep structure of the state uh, and what's really going on. It's a very useful position. And in the case of the anthrax attacks, I think it's the clear limited hangout position by which I mean you tell some truth and you hide other big truths, as I mentioned before. So when the Iraq al-Qaeda hypothesis just crumbles, you turn around and you say, okay, well, we'll admit it came from U.S. military labs, but we'll say it was a random nut, you know, and we'll find the nut and we'll make sure he ends up dead. And that's the end of the story and they won't look any further. And that's, to some extent, what's happened, except that the FBI hasn't been entirely successful in selling the Bruce Ivan story. Now, were there connections between the so-called 19 uh, 9-11 hijackers and the perpetrators of the anthrax attacks? Could you talk about the Florida connection of the anthrax attacks between uh, West Palm Beach and Miami? Yes, exactly. Um, if you're looking for contacts, uh, connections between the 19 so-called hijackers and the um, anthrax attacks, that's where I would first look. So I'm looking at a map of Florida right here. There are all kinds of places between West Palm Beach, further to the north, and Miami and the south, where the hijackers, at least 14 out of 19, had Florida connections. They lived there. They went to the gym there. Some of them took um, flight lessons in Florida. Um, they went to the doctor there. They went to bars there. They hung out there. There's strong, strong connections. So the first thing we notice is that the first anthrax victim, Robert Stevens, dies in um, Boca Raton, right in the middle of that area. Now, that in itself might not seem very strong circumstantial evidence, but it starts to look strong as we narrow in on this. We say, well, who was Robert Stevens? Well, he was a photo editor who worked for a tabloid called The Sun, the sister publication of the National Enquirer. And Stevens seems to have contracted anthrax at his workplace at The Sun, probably through a letter, and he then dies of it. Okay. Well, who was the editor-in-chief of The Sun at the time? was a man named Mike Irish, whose wife knew two of the hijackers. She didn't just know them. She was a real estate agent. She found apartments for them. So here there's a direct connection between the son, where the first anthrax guy dies, and two hijackers, Hamza El-Gamdi and Marwan al-Shehi, and also Muhammad Atta, the leader, because he co-signed for one of their leases. Now, at this point, any criminal investigator, any homicide investigator would be saying, this is interesting. This is interesting. It's not conclusive. It could be, an, it could be coincidence, but it's looking very interesting. So you'd want to look into that further, and you'd also want to look into any other incidents which seem to tie these 19 hijackers to anthrax, and there are such incidents. 
I'm speaking with researcher Dr. Graham McQueen. Today's show, Connecting the Anthrax Attacks to September 11th. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, what about uh, one of the so-called hijackers showing up at uh, the Department of Agriculture and trying to get a loan? Right. Well, this is one of several incidents in which the uh, some of these 19 hijackers are running around, and they're doing this for about a year and a half, right up to a week before 9-11, expressing interest in small planes which disperse various agents into the air. And most of these are crop duster planes. So here we have guys coming from the Middle East and Afghanistan and so on and saying, you know, my dream is to somehow crop dust American, American crops. And they're, they're being very out front, very blatant about this. They, they make sure they're not forgotten. They'll go and have a little fight with somebody who has, a, you know, uh, one of these um, crop duster planes and so on and so forth. So the story you're referring to is when the so-called ringleader, Mohammed Atta, comes to ask for a loan. And I can tell you that fascinating story because I really find it it tells us a lot about how these things are structured. So Mohammed Atta, and this is, I think, back in spring of 2000. It's um, quite a long time before 9-11. It's in Florida, and he goes to a woman named Jonelle Bryant, who has a loan office at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He walks in because he understands his loan's being given out, and he explains to her that uh, his name is Mohammed Atta, and he spells his name, that's A-T-T-A. You know, and I'm a young man from Afghanistan, which is interesting because the real Mohammed Atta is from Egypt. It seems odd that he would choose a more suspect country. So he, he's not really concealing himself very well. He's given his real name. He's claimed to be from Afghanistan. I want to, I wanna, you know, spray U.S. crops, he says, and for this. I need a $650,000 loan, which I hope your department will give me. And I'm going to take, you know, um, a, a small aircraft and take out all the seats except the pilot's seat and convert it into a kind of crop duster plane by putting a big chemical tank in it. And I'm an engineer, so I know how to do that. And he's pretty rough with her because, you know, I don't want to deal with a woman, but if I have to, blah, blah, blah. Well, she kind of calms him down and says, you know, you can't just walk out of the door with 650000 bucks. There's an application process. And furthermore, I hate to say, you're not an American citizen, so you're not even eligible for the program. Well, he's not very happy being told all this. So he says to her, and bear in mind here, this is supposed to be a top secret operative. Obviously, he's He's planning one of the biggest operations ever on U.S. soil. He's got to be very secret. He's already told them his name. He's expressing aggression. Now he says, what would happen if I just came around behind your desk and cut your throat? And then I could take the $650,000. Talk about making yourself unforgettable. Well, (laughs) yeah, so she doesn't seem very perturbed, Janelle Bryant, as she tells us to ABC News. She says, well, first of all, I don't carry that cash in my office, and secondly, I know karate. <laughs> 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 yeah, so I don't know. She doesn't phone for help or anything. They continue to discuss amicably, and at some point, uh, Muhammad Atta notices that on her wall is hanging an aerial photograph of Washington, D.C., with all the nice monuments marked and everything, he says, oh, that's remarkable. That's 
beautiful. I've never seen such a clear aerial photograph of Washington, D.C. I need to have it. He starts throwing money down on the counter. I want to buy it. She says, well, you can't buy it. It's a gift. Uh, and he gets annoyed again. And he says, well, you know, how would you like it if people from outside the United States came to a country, you know, a city like Washington and destroyed its monuments, right? <laughs> again, this doesn't seem to bother her. She doesn't seem to, there's no bells going off at this point. He then turns the conversation to another topic and starts talking about the World Trade Center in New York. What an interesting building that is and how he would like to visit it. And he asks her if she knows how good the security there is. <laughs> <laughs> no bells are ringing for Janelle yet, I guess. Then he switches the topic again. This is all, I'm taking this all direct from the ABC report, okay? Then he says, you know, in Afghanistan where I come from, there's a wonderful man named Osama bin Laden. And one day he will be famous, okay? So I don't know how this guy could have given her a better sense of what he was up to. But <laughs> she doesn't seem disturbed. They get up, shake hands, and she wishes him well, and he goes out the door. And it's not until the 9-11 thing happens that Janelle Bryant realizes, gee, maybe he was a terrorist. Um, you know, maybe that was the famous Muhammad Atta, so then she goes public with it. Uh, but when I look at this absurd incident, and friends of mine who have examined it more than I think that it really happened, because I initially thought, you know, this may be totally cooked up by Janelle Bryant, but... They say no. She actually existed. They verified it. She did work for that office. She did seem to come forward voluntarily. They think it's genuine. In that case, the whole event is theater. This is not a top-secret operative trying to disguise his identity and get a loan to buy a plane. This is a guy who has been tasked with laying down the most blatant possible track. And what is the track he's laying down? Well, he's going to be the guy known as the head of the 9-11 hijackers, and here he's trying to get a hold of a little plane which he can convert to spray something over the United States. And this is one of several incidents in which they're trying to get hold of planes that they can use to spray stuff on the United States. And, of course, everybody knew in the United States is widely known that Iraq it had an anthrax program, and that it used fighter jets to spray it. That was their chosen method of dissemination. So I think what's going on here is that clearly a, a, a trail is being laid, and we're supposed to follow it, and we're supposed to get the idea later that the same guys who hijacked those planes and did 9-11 were also planning anthrax attacks. And if they weren't able to do them in the end from the air with their little planes, because the U.S. grounded all crop duster planes. All crop duster planes in the United States were ordered grounded on September 16th. So the idea was, well, I guess they couldn't do it that way, so they resorted to sending around the letters. So this is another example of how a trail was laid down for us to try and say these were all connected. And, of course, what I'm saying to you is that even if it was all theater, it does actually prove that they were connected because the same choreographers, if you like, were choreographing the anthrax attacks and the 9-11 attacks and were insisting we see that they were connected. Exactly. And this was the narrative that was spun early on. We no longer hear anything about this. Exactly. Right. And we also don't hear about the anthrax. 
one of the 19 hijackers, a man by the name of Ahmad uh, Al-Hasnawi, who went to the doctor with a big black lesion on his leg, which the doctor later decided was cutaneous anthrax, which he probably got while experimenting with anthrax. We don't hear about that story, but the FBI took it so seriously that they actually say that they analyzed the remains of one of the hijackers on Flight 93, presumably the same guy, in order to test it for anthrax. We don't hear about that connection anymore either. And there's also, of course, the foreknowledge thing. Uh, the most dramatic one of that that really puzzles me is Washington Post columnist Richard Cohen, who said in an article um, a couple of years ago, and I'm going to quote, he's talking about the anthrax attacks. The attacks were not entirely unexpected. I had been told soon after September 11th to secure Cipro, the antidote to anthrax. The tip had come in a roundabout way from a high government official, and I immediately acted on it. I was carrying Cipro way before most people had ever heard of it. Now, that's really strange. Um, that's not like a public announcement where you say, well, there's been a terrorist attack in New York City, and so we have a protocol, and that is we must assume bioweapons may now be used, so we suggest the following individuals take Cipro. I mean, that that's the argument used for why White House officials were put on Cipro. But here's a guy who's a journalist, and who he's given a tip, Right. Um, that's what he calls it, in a roundabout way, by a high government official. Before the anthrax attacks are known about, he's taking Cipro. Well, excuse me, but that really is fishy. Dr. McQueen, is there anything else you'd like to add about the anthrax attacks that we haven't discussed? My last message to people would just be, you know, these were studied together and considered to be connected in the first couple of months after the anthrax attacks. And then we were led to believe we should no longer consider them together. We should consider them as completely unrelated. And I'm saying it's time to put them back together because I do believe they were done by the same people with the same goals and the same structures, and we need to uncover all of that. The FBI isn't going to uncover it. It's up to civil society, meaning us. That brings me to the Toronto hearings. You are on the steering committee of the Toronto hearings. That is the international hearings of the events of September 11, 2001. What is the purpose of the Toronto hearings on the 10th anniversary of September 11? Well, at this very important anniversary of the events, where we expect a lot of myth and propaganda to be in the air, we thought it was important to have a counter voice. And we thought what we would do is take four days and pack them full of really fine, high-quality witnesses. And we would have a panel hearing these witnesses, hence the term hearings. And we would try and make a strong prima facie case uh, that the official narrative of 9-11 is fatally flawed. So that's the idea. I mean, it would be up to the panel to decide whether the case has been made well enough but we will try to make it through a whole series of perhaps 20 witnesses. That's the gist of it. So we're encouraging people to go on the Internet and um, just Google Toronto Hearings, and you'll get it. It's got a web page. It'll tell you if you want to come, how to come, how to pay. 
you want to donate, please donate. You know, we need money. Um, please support us. We also intend to live webcast this event so that everyone, hopefully, who wants to have access will find a way to get access to it as it's going on. And we will produce a DVD at the end and probably a written report as well. Well, Dr. Graham McQueen, thank you very much. Thank you, Bonnie. It was a pleasure to be on. I've been speaking with Dr. Graham McQueen. Today's show has been Connecting the Anthrax Attacks to September 11th. Graham McQueen received his Ph.D. in Buddhist Studies from Harvard University and taught in the Religious Studies Department of McMaster University for 30 years. In 1989, he became founding director of the Center for Peace Studies at McMaster, after which he helped develop the B.A. program in Peace Studies and oversaw the development of peace-building projects in Sri Lanka, Gaza, Croatia, and Afghanistan. He has contributed to the development of the Women's Peace Brigade in North India. He currently serves on the Board of Directors of the International Center for 9-11 Studies. He has written four research articles related to 9-11, posted at journalof911studies.com. Graham McQueen serves on the organizing committee of the Toronto hearings on 9-11, scheduled to take place at Ryerson University September 8th through the 11th, 2001. Visit the Toronto Hearings website at torontohearings.org. That's torontohearings.org. Today's show was co-produced by Todd Fletcher. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments, order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. Hey yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what this side yourself.